Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Off of the Couch podcast. Maggie here. This is a bit of a best of show with clips from four of the more well-known experts on strength training that I was privileged to interview last year. My main mission when I started this podcast was to share the idea that a small amount of time exercising has a huge impact on a person's life, especially as they age. I expected my listeners to be women more than men, but the benefits are really the same for both men and women. Sometimes they may have different objectives. Women might want to be thinner, men might be looking for bulkier muscles, but the health benefits are pretty similar. I really can't understate the benefits of strength training. So I'm going to share the clips of four of the experts that were kind enough to let me ask them questions this past year. First, here's Dr. Ben Bokikio who's in his 70s and has been training people his whole adult life. He's a speaker, a researcher, and an author on the subject. Um, so you teach something called smart training. Can you explain smart exercise? You describe yeah, that. so, you know, I developed this system of slow resistance training in the early 70s, 73, 74. I took it public. I opened a center of my own. I was just out of graduate school. And I developed a system of slow resistance training, um, and I just gave it an acronym, you know, slow maximum response training, because I thought slow training is the basis of what we do. We move slowly, so we reduce likelihood of injury, uh, and so we maintain high intensity. And everybody wants the maximum, I think, response from their time and effort. Everybody wants the biggest bang for their buck, right? And so I just thought of an acronym, SMART, which is, you know, the opposite of stupid, so it can't be that bad. So anyway, um, that's the way I came up with that. But I, so what what I noticed as a student and as an athlete and as a kind of a teacher of people, even at a really young age, teacher of exercise, um, I noticed that, you know, doing more exercise is okay, especially in the beginning, but that's not really the answer to continued progression as you go up the ladder of levels of fitness and performance. And so it, it became pretty apparent to me that working harder, not necessarily more, was really the key to progression, you know, which makes kind of sense if you think about it. The body, if you do that which your body is used to, and, you know, even if you do it for a longer period of time, unless it's ridiculously, you know, elongated, your body doesn't really need to adapt and respond because it can handle that which you are demanding of it, okay? But if you make it harder, if you take this exercise to a point that you're not used to supporting that energy demand or the rate of the energy demand, it would, in a healthy body, at any age, really, adapt upwardly, and that's really what we're trying to do is to get to the next level or at least not go down to the lower level as we get older, you know? So... Um, that's the system that I developed. And conventionally, to work at that intensity, we had to use heavy loads, and most of the movements are really explosive and violent to lift the heavy loads, no matter what it was. And that was okay, except that it was really 
dangerous, dangerous meaning at some point in time the wear and tear wore out the joints. And as we get older, and even an athlete gets, you know, past 25, 27 years old, um, the, the weak link is not the muscle capacity and strength and, and function. It's the joints that are the, really the weak link in the process. So when I reduce the speeds, having done everything slowly, uh, although intensely going to what we call muscle failure, which sounds ominous, but it really isn't, um, we reduce the mechanical stress the force on the joints and apply the tension to the muscles, which is exactly what we want to do, and drastically reduce, reduce probably close to zero, the possibility of injury. So it kind of worked out uh, for everybody. Yeah, and, and you say you have like a long history of really nobody becoming injured from doing the slow training. We have had nobody injured. I've worked world-class, world record holder, Olympic gold medal winning athletes very, very rigorously and hard, and I've done rehab patients 10 days out of surgery and everybody in between at every age from 8 to 95, and we haven't had an injury, okay? So it's, 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 it's almost impossible to become injured if, if you're supervised and have some idea what you're doing, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you can, you can work as hard as you want, as efficiently as you want, as safely as you want. So I, kind of, I, I tried to take care of the components of what I thought productive exercise were, and those were safety, efficiency, uh, productivity, um, long-term adherence, uh, you know, things like that, and universally applicable. So we kind of, I think, we've met all those criteria as well as we can at this point in time, and if something comes up that I can, where I can improve it, I'll be right there. So, But for right now, I think it's, I can defend it uh, with, with, with what we do and against anything that somebody might want to argue about. Right. Well, I can see how you get long-term adherence when you're only talking about, you know, two 15-minute sessions a week versus what mm-hmm. most people think they really need to do. Yeah, again, Maggie, this is, a, this is a pretty potent prescription. I mean, I wrote in the 70s about exercise as medicine, and I said, this is a pretty potent uh, prescription. If I, if I tell you I give you a pill that could reduce your body fat, that could lower your blood pressure, that could increase your muscle strength and capacity and endurance, that would enhance your respiratory breathing capacity, uh, make your cardiovascular system healthier, your nervous system more responsive, your skeletal system stronger. Now, if I could give you a pill to do that, would you take it? Yeah, you'd take it in a minute. You would take it in a minute. 30 minutes a week. Next, I asked him about sarcopenia, which means muscle loss. Um, okay, I would like to ask about um, sarcopenia, too, when you mentioned um, people getting mm-hmm. older. Um, yep. So what do we have to look forward to if we take up weight training as we age? Okay, so there's chronological aging, okay, and that happens and you flip the calendar and, you know, it happens to me, it happens to everybody on the planet, okay? Okay, but that mm-hmm. has not absolutely to be correlative to biological or functional aging, okay? The, the, there's a difference. So sarcopenia, I mean, most women know what, uh, and, and men, some men know, osteopenia is that, that step between healthy bone to starting to lose bone, osteopenia to osteoporosis. Well, you have the same right. mechanism with muscles, from healthy hypertrophied muscle to sarcopenic, and sarco just means muscle, 
So it means we're starting to lose muscle uh, to the point where we're going to get to a point where we're actually non-functional, okay? So that's the same. Now, what's really interesting, and I discovered as a very young man, is that the muscles and the bone are obviously mechanically, you know, physically, anatomically connected, but they're also metabolically connected. When you increase the protein synthesis, the muscle building in the muscle, the bones attached to those specific muscles will increase their protein synthesis, okay, which means bones are a protein matrix like a spider web upon which we lay down calcium. One of the things we lay down is calcium. The more we build that protein, that, that spider web, the, more, the easier it is to lay down calcium and the harder it is to leach off. So whenever we increase muscle or the activity of muscle or the growth of muscle, we increase it in the bone. And when we lose it in the muscle, we lose it in the bone and vice versa. When astronauts go into space, they become osteopenic, they lose bone, and they lose muscle. And when they get back to Earth, they do exercise, they increase their muscle, they increase their bone. I mean, puberty, same thing happens. Anytime you, unless there's a hormonal disorder, anytime you gain muscle, you gain bone. Anytime you lose muscle, you lose bone. And that's a gross, very understated way of saying that's exactly what happens. So if I can increase that muscle activity and the protein uptake or synthesis or growing of the muscle, I do it in the associated bones all the time. Okay. So you're really, you know, the point is you're really going to enjoy your retirement a lot more if you have built up the muscle and bone. You're not going to be, you know, just um, hanging around with a walker, but you're going to be yeah, able yeah, to... Yeah, you, you are definitely producing a state of a higher level of capacity and functional ability if you're stronger, okay? Uh, a, yeah. a landmark study, 2007, I think Journal of American Medical Association or British Journal, anyway, 2007, Ruiz, R-U-I-Z, and Blair, 12,000, it was mm -hmm. men, 12,000 men, and they compared all of the different variables to aging, which was the most correlative. The most correlative factor to aging is muscle strength. Not smoking, not diabetes, not obesity, not even aerobic capacity, muscle strength. If you are in the top third for your age and gender in muscle strength, you are 35% less likely to die of cancer and 40% more likely to live to be 100. Okay, that is the number one correlative to longevity is muscle strength. And there are so many studies, so it's not been pulling this stuff out of his hat. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I think a guy was a, a Vini, V-I-N-I, and Lee, L-I, did a prospective study, a, a meta-analysis of I don't know how many tens of thousands of people. And if you include exercise, you know, significant, not, not significant amount, but, you know, real exercise as opposed to just, and even some of this was activity, to be honest with you. You live 8.1 mm -hmm. years longer than the people who don't. And if you include a uh -huh. good diet, whatever that is, with exercise, you live 11.1 years longer than people who don't. And that's, we're talking tens of thousands of subjects, you know, in different populations. So yeah. this stuff is pretty reinforceable intellectually and academically. And, and clinically, you observe this all the time. I mean, you, you see it. It happens. I mean, yeah. so, yeah. you know, unless there's a problem, you have a disease or an accident, I mean, obviously there's some bad stuff can happen. But for the most part, right. the most powerful or the most um, contributory positive factor you can behaviorally encounter is 
getting stronger, strength training. Next, I have Dr. Stuart Phillips, professor at McMaster University and one of the recognized experts because of his research on how much protein do we need and what type of exercise works best. Um, is there a certain amount of protein that you recommend? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the current uh, what's called an RDA or recommended dietary allowance is, uh, in my opinion, too, too low, particularly for older people. I, I, it, it sits currently at 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, and I think it should be higher. I think it should be at least 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram per day, so that's a 150% over what it is currently, and that older people need to pay attention to the amount of protein that they get in their diet because it's, uh, for a lot of reasons, it's the basically the building block or the substrate that is going to enable them to be able to hang on to muscle for longer. And when you combine it with exercise, it's, the again, the substrate that repairs and, you know, we use the phrase remodels tissues um, after you've uh, engaged in some form of exercise, so particularly uh, resistance or weight training exercise. And it targets the tissue that we're interested in, um, you know, preserving, which is muscle. And, and I think the interesting, and, and, and probably a lot of people would, uh, you know, raise their eyebrows at this one, is to remind people that your bone is actually 40% by its mass uh, protein. So once you've got adequate calcium and adequate vitamin D, um, then protein is actually a bone-supportive nutrient. It's, it's not, it doesn't cause your bones to become weak or frail or brittle or anything like that. So it's, it's a bone and muscle-supportive nutrient and a lots of other functions as well, obviously. Okay. All right, so are you a fan of adding protein shakes, or do you find that most seniors can get enough from their food? Yeah, I think, I think the types of targets that I'm talking about are a little bit harder for older people to achieve. It depends. Um, it depends on their, you know, sort of uh, where they buy their food, what they, you know, <laughs> how good they are preparing it. Um, I think yeah. you can easily get 1.2 using real food. And, you know, when I say real food, you know, sort of grocery store bought items. And uh, we, we try and talk to people about, you know, what we call nutrient-dense sources of protein. And so those are things like dairy protein, uh, eggs, uh, meat and fish, chicken, that sort of thing. Not to say that plant source proteins also, can, you know, are not nutrient-dense, mm -hmm. they just tend to have um, a little bit lower uh, amount of protein per amount of energy eaten. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you sometimes have to eat a lot of legumes or beans uh, to get the amount of protein that we're talking about. So I don't really oppose the use of protein shakes. We've done plenty of studies with product formulations and protein-style shakes with older people, and they, they're remarkably effective. It, it's an easy, I would say, convenient way to, for older people to get protein, but it's certainly not necessary. It just, okay. it just makes things easier. Yeah, 
yeah, I have actually added a protein shake because I just feel like I'm full sometimes before I've eaten, you know, what what would be enough, I think. And is, do you think there's a minimum amount, like per meal? I've heard that recently that you have to eat a certain um, amount of protein before it's um, effective in building muscle or... That yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, lots of people have um, have made that uh, that point because uh, you know, and I like to try and remind people. I say, you know, unlike fat or carbohydrate, um, which we can we have a pretty good ability as humans to store, we don't have the ability to store protein somewhere. We can't kind of tuck it away and use it for later. So, um, the meal that you eat. Uh, is really the available amino acids or the building blocks of protein uh, are only really usable within the time frame after you've eaten. So that might be, you know, four or five hours or thereabouts. Um, so the per meal uh, serve might be something, I, I, you know, I, I, if I'm honest with you, I like to give it in a uh, per per kilo body weight uh, type basis. So if you split that 1.2, um, that I'm talking about into three meals, then it's 0.4 mm-hmm. grams of protein per kilo per meal. Um, so that would be, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so to speak. Uh, most people mm-hmm. hit that target at dinner time, no problem. Uh, they right. fall short of it at lunch, and they fall very short of it at breakfast, mostly because they're you know, following a lot of advice, they eat heart-healthy greens, and, and not that that's bad. Uh, it's just that they're not particularly high in uh, in protein at, at their breakfast meal. So it's a, it's a lower-protein meal, and I think it probably could stand to have a little bit of protein added to it for most people. To breakfast, yeah. A lot of people are starting with yeah. cereal or oatmeal uh, or toast instead of yep, exactly. um, a protein breakfast. So that might be when they could add like a, a smoothie or that that yogurt uh, or dairy. And, of course, yeah. eggs. And, and, and Yeah, eggs. I, yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, the, the, you, to, to speak with people uh, down in the center I direct here uh, and we talk about eggs and I say, you know, they're, they're affordable. Um, they're uh, nutrient-dense. There's lots of nutrients in eggs that we can't uh, get in from other foods. They have a decent serve of protein. I mean, it's still only about six or seven grams per egg. And you know what? And a lot of people go, oh, I love eggs, but the cholesterol. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the newsflash. You know, eggs are off the dirty list. Uh, you know, we're, even, even the dietary guideline folks is saying, you know, that the amount of cholesterol that we eat is not really uh, a main driver of the amount of cholesterol in circulation. So, you know, so they're, they're off the bad list. You can have an egg. It's all good. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, people sort of feel liberated and other people are like, oh, my doctor wouldn't let me do that. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, one egg a day is really not going to push you over the edge. All right, I'm going to yeah. switch topics again. What is the oldest person that you've that you've helped to start an exercise program or at your center? Um, what's the oldest person you've seen benefit? Yeah, well, uh, I'll play my high card here. Uh, we have a, a gentleman, uh, which makes him rare because it's uh, rarer to get men who are centenarians, but a guy named John who is my, I tell him he's my poster child for 
uh, aging well. He's 104. Uh, oh, well. He comes to our, our center. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's still the message and it's, it's still true um, that uh, the whatever you want to call it, it's never too late to start mantra is no. I think the, the, the one that, you know, people, I've never exercised before. I've never done this before. Um, we have a lot of those people. I'll admit that a lot of them come, uh, you know, into our cardiac rehab program. Uh, they, mm-hmm. and they've had a life-changing event, and they they say, "Okay, I need to learn how to do this." Uh, some stick Better with it. Late uh, than never. You might yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Many don't. Uh, that's unfortunate. But I think that the the point is, um, it, it's never too late to start. Uh, we've seen people in their in their there's data on people in their in their 90s. Uh, getting not maybe not improving their muscle mass per se, but definitely getting stronger and more functional. And um, so anybody can benefit. You know, you name the age range. I think everybody um, sees a benefit. If we take a look around the world at these so-called blue zones, these these you know filled with sort mm-hmm. of centenarian uh, areas. They're always well. First, they're they're blue, so they're usually near an ocean or some form of water, okay. and they're usually yeah. built on a steep, steep hillside. You know, they've got a steep, and, and people say, "Well, these people don't exercise." I'm like, "They don't have to. They're walking up and down hills all the time." You know, it's a it's right. a built-in form of exercise, and they're very, very physically active. Um, you know, at the right. same time, their their society values older people, so there's no ageism in the society, and, and, and so older people are supported, and uh, et cetera, so there's, you know, there's a psychological component, and I'm absolutely certain a strong genetic driver, and people argue for diet and everything else like that. Uh, I guess yeah. my point would be that, um, you know, these people are still, uh, even into their 90s and beyond 100, uh, they're marching up and down hills and they're trudging all over town, still buying their groceries, et cetera, et cetera. They slow down, of course. You know, aging is, is always going to get you at some point. Yeah, the combination, though, where you're right, of lifestyle, fresh air, fresh food, lots of uh, lots of camaraderie probably, too, and family time. It sounds pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might have to look at moving though. Um, all right. Well, listen. I'll yeah, let. I, mean, I, I think uh, that there there are there are pockets there are pockets of centenarians that aren't always in these blue zones. They exist in other places. Uh-huh. It's just that they're they tend to be concentrated in certain areas around the world. And so, people have studied these these folks and sort of said that uh, you know uh, the point to make is um, uh, really that you know all of these folks. Um, have the potential. Some people believe mm-hmm. it's you know uh, it's just lifestyle that's limiting our, our our lifespan right now. And there's lots of other things we can do to extend it. What we're really talking mm. about in the context of diet and exercise is, of course, a much closer matching between what we call our health span, which is the number of years we spend in you know quote unquote good health. So, mm-hmm. i.e., without a chronic condition, uh, able to move yeah. well feeling emotionally well, mental health-wise well, et cetera, et cetera, um, and matching that with our, uh, our lifespan. Because we've added 30-plus years to our life in, in the last century, right? So, oh. um, yeah. So we just want that to be as, as good as possible, as mobile and, and um, 
yeah, and be able to <laughs> carry on a conversation without dementia, all that stuff. Do you? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, do you think there's any relationship between sarcopenia and dementia? Because I did see an article about that recently from Japan. Yeah, great question. Uh, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, does exercise change your brain? I'd have been like, oh, I'm not sure. Five years ago, yeah. I'd been like, you know what? There's a bit of evidence. Now it's unequivocal. Um, exercise okay. has effects that go well beyond just muscle and bone and heart and lung, uh, and it does affect mental health. We know that. There are people who exercise mm-hmm. greater, or excuse me, reduce risk of depression, reduce risk of anxiety, uh, protection against uh, both all-cause and Alzheimer's-related dementia, better prognosis for Alzheimer's and, and demented patients who are physically active. They tend to retain function longer, like I'm talking cognitive function. And mm. we now know that people's brains who exercise regularly, a uh, specific part of their brain, the hippocampus, which is really important in cognitive processes, is, is actually enhanced. It's larger. Uh, and it's preserved. Uh, so, you know, if you, again, well, 10 years ago, you said, does your brain change with exercise? And I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know. But I have a good um, a bunch of colleagues here in my department who now remind me regularly that, um, that exercise is, is um, you know, good for the brain as much as it is for uh, the physical musculature. So, you know, I thank them for uh, reminding me why it's important to exercise. It's not just about my muscles, my heart, my lungs, but my... Uh, my brain health as well. So, yeah, absolutely. And we're scratching the surface uh, on that one. Really, well, we're, we're just in early days. Third, we have Dr. Wayne Westcott, who spent his career also studying the effects of resistance training on aging. The main problem with women and men in the aging process. It's very insidious, but it's a very important problem, and that is muscle loss. Once men and women hit actually their 20s, but certainly their 30s and 40s and 50s at about doubles, but they lose muscle at the rate of approximately five pounds per decade. They don't notice it because the average American woman is actually gaining about 15 pounds of fat per decade during those midlife years. So the scale weight is going up by about 10 pounds every decade, and they don't realize that's because they've added 15 pounds of fat and lost five mm-hmm. pounds of muscle. They may, see, they may know that they've gained some fat. Oh, I don't look as good as I used to, but they don't realize they've lost the muscle. So in, in addition to the steps or walking or cycling or swimming, whatever else they're doing, they definitely need to do some resistance exercise to maintain their muscle. Not that they would build large muscles. Some women are afraid of that, and that is very rare because they don't have the potential to do that. Most men don't even have the potential to build really large muscles. But to maintain the muscle they have is so important, Maggie. Uh, Not only you know, for their function and for their appearance, but it maintains their metabolism. When you lose muscle, your metabolic rate slows down. That five pound per decade muscle loss is largely responsible for about a 3% per decade um, decrease in resting metabolic rate. And that's why the, the fat gain, even though they may be eating the same or eating even less. Another reason 
is because when you lose muscle, you lose bone. Sarcopenia, mm-hmm. which is the loss of muscle, and osteopenia are directly related. And that bone loss is really significant. It's much worse than the metabolic rate reduction and the, and the muscle loss. The bone loss uh, progresses from women in their 20s and 30s to 40s and 50s to 60s and 70s from 10 to 20 to 30% per decade, which is a huge bone loss. So, so yeah. they, can do, they can do the aerobic activity, which is great, certainly recommend that, but they should also be doing some, some resistance exercise. And if they do the resistance exercise, because it increases their resting metabolic rate, I'll talk to you more about that later if you'd like, but it increases their resting sure. metabolic rate, they don't have to be on the low-calorie diet. They'll, they'll be fine on, on eating you know, healthy foods. Okay, yeah, because if they're eating lower and lower calories, then you probably get more and more muscle and bone loss. You're... You're not uh, going to get the results that you're really hoping for. You're, in fact, doing some damage there. Exactly. It's, it's a snowball effect, and it's all related. It all goes back to the loss of muscle, which people, not their, not their fault, they don't even realize they're, they're losing it because they're just looking at the scale weight. They don't have you know, body composition analyzers typically, but that's the real key. Nice. So what would you recommend? What kind of program, if you had, a, say, a middle-aged woman coming to you um, and, and I know that you're retiring, but say you were not retiring and you had a middle-aged woman coming to you um, for a program, what, what does it look like? Our programs have always been very basic, very simple, very doable, very time-efficient because people are busy and they don't always have time to do a lot of extra things, especially um, women who have a family and a job and trying to do other social things, et cetera, and community service, it's very hard. So our programs have always been um, pretty much the old, not the new, but the old ACSM guidelines, which were based on the old Nautilus principles of let's do about 10 exercises. So we hit all the major muscle groups. I won't leave any out. So we're going to you know, hit the, 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 the front thighs and the rear thighs and the abs and the lower back and the upper back and the chest and the shoulders and the biceps and the triceps and, and, and you know, maybe a couple of others, calves, et cetera. But uh, we want to hit all the major muscle groups, and we, want, we do one set, just one good set of each exercise. We use a weight that is about 75% of what they could do one time in good form, which is pretty much the same. You know, if they're doing um, cardio, usually work at about 75% of maximum heart rate. Well, it's the same for strength. 75% of maximum strength is a very good level at which to train. It's not too much. It's not too little. And they would do that two or three days a week. We found no difference whether it's twice a week or three days a week. When we do that in the first 10 weeks, and we're looking at at data on 2,800 individuals, about 80% of whom were women, okay, Uh, Okay. they they added three pounds, just under three pounds of new muscle in that first uh, 10-week period. Now, it slows down a little bit after that, but in our six-month studies, they're still averaging about one pound of muscle every month that they're rebuilding. That's a lot better than, you know, than losing muscle than every losing. month. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, it's a doable program. Now, if you start with that and say, I really like this, I want to do more, wonderful, you can do more. We never stop people from doing more. If they want to do two sets or three sets or four sets, that's fine. If they want to add another five exercises for other purposes, that's fine. We, we never want to restrict them. But we find if we start with 
too much. People are gung-ho, I'm going to do this and this. I read this on the, on, on the web, and I, I'm going to follow this routine. And they, they do it for a week, and they say, wow, this is really hard. It's really time-consuming. I'm not feeling so well after doing this. I'm really exhausted. So right. uh, they don't do it. But if they start easily, not easily, that's the wrong word. If they start simply uh, and in a time-efficient manner, they can always add to it. And that becomes, you know, um, I think a much better sustainable, progressive program than, um, you know, a hit-or-miss type program. A more about the medical benefits of strength training. I saw that you had written some papers on this subject. Oh, yes, definitely. Thank you for asking. So uh, medical benefit number one is to prevent sarcopenia, the loss of muscle, because um, all-cause mortality, all causes of death are much lower, significantly lower in people who strength train, who maintain their muscle, than in people who do all the other things right but don't strength train and don't maintain their muscle. So um, it definitely has a benefit of maintaining your muscle. The other part of that is that muscles actually produce hormone-like substances called myokines, and myokines affect all the other organs in the body, all the other tissues. They're important. So you don't want to lose muscle and have a reduction in myokine production because um, that, that takes away from, from many aspects of good health over time. So maintaining muscle will be one good reason. As I mentioned earlier, if you maintain your muscle, you will maintain your bone. If you build muscle, you will build bone. We've seen that in our nine-month osteoporosis study. Those that didn't strength train lost 1% of their bone, exactly. Those who did strength train Oh dear, I'm, I'm ahead of myself here. But they, they didn't lose. They didn't gain significantly, but they didn't lose. But those who did strength training and took a little extra protein, now remember, these are postmenopausal women, so they're over, most of them are over age 60, actually, and they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't get as much protein and they don't assimilate amino acids nearly as well in your 50s and 60s as you did in your 30s and 40s. So we put some extra protein with them. They took a protein shake after each workout, and they actually added 1% to their bone. So, so building bone, um, wow. preventing osteopenia, and building muscle, preventing sarcopenia are key. Maintaining a good metabolic rate, which reduces the risk of overweight and obesity, fat gain. Um, certainly in our studies, we have seen that strength training reduces HbA1c, that's the, the new measure okay. of blood sugar, so it reduces your risk of, of being a pre-diabetic or a diabetic. It also, mm-hmm. in most studies, ours did not, because our people in, in the weight loss study, we, we looked at this, did not have high cholesterol to start with, but in most studies, those people who have uh, higher than um, recommended cholesterol levels or lipid levels, triglycerides, LDLs, um, total cholesterol, et cetera, they had, have had significant reductions in those um, lipid levels and the, the, you know, the fats moving through the bloodstream, which is a good thing mm-hmm. that reduces the risk of, of, of cardiovascular disease. Speaking of cardiovascular disease, uh, although the original research was kind of mixed, the more recent research shows clearly that strength training, sensible strength training, improves endothelial function of the vessels, meaning that they are more, more pliable, they're not likely to get stiff and have a so-called what we just call hardening of the arteries. Um, they're mm-hmm. pliable. They can expand and contract as they, as they have to. Your arteries expand and contract with each, uh, each influx of blood through each heartbeat. So you want that to happen, and strength training is a part of that. Uh, cardio training would be helpful, of course, 
as well. Numerous studies have shown that strength training, uh, some even shown more than cardio training, uh, are important for preventing dementia, even uh, Alzheimer's disease. And in our studies, not looking at that aspect, the cognitive aspect, but the emotional aspects, we've done studies with um, with Dr. Jim and Nessie on the emotional impact of strength training, uh, looking at the profile of mood states, and every aspect of that has improved in older women. Our studies were done with women over 60 who did strength training. All you know, whether it's whether it's you know. Um, just just the, the simple things, emotional, simple emotional aspects, or whether it is, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, depression. You know, even, even oh, depression wow. which is a, a serious clinical aspect. We've seen reductions in every aspect, of that, and so have many other studies, numerous as well. So um, wow. in terms of mental and physical um, Benefits, strength training is, is right up there. Other aspects, Maggie, would be reductions in low back pain. We've seen that in numerous studies. We get about a 90% mm-hmm. success rate with low back patients. Wow. Other studies, and our studies have shown reductions in arthritic pain. Other studies have shown it reduces the, S, um, the symptoms of fibromyalgia, which is a pretty complex uh, issue. I'm not quite sure how it does that, but we've seen that as well in our studies. I can't tell you how, but it does. And other studies have actually shown that it reduces your risk of colon cancer by increasing gastrointestinal transit time, the, the speed at which food moves through your digestive system and your, you know, your, um, uh, your, <laughs> your intestines and through your colon. So there are so many benefits. In fact, I can't think of many, many reasons why you couldn't strength train other than if someone had an, um, uh, you know, a, a, a weak artery that could kind of bubble up and burst, and, and that's pretty rare. So, uh, you know, right. people that, that, that do have those type of issues are told not to strength train with very much weight, but they can still strength train. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good thing to do, resistance exercise for the musculoskeletal system. Um, can we switch to talking about diet? I know that you have um, done some experimenting with higher protein, Yes, we have, and that's because um, the, some of the Harvard um, docs and professors and medical doctors uh, who, who work with obese individuals, including the bariatric surgery level, they, um, they have found that when people, of course others have too, they have found that when people go on a diet, they lose muscle as well as fat. And in fact, about 25% of the weight lost on most sensible diets is lean weight, it's muscle weight. And on the, the, the really crash diets, the low-cal diets, it's even more than that. And that's, that's very harmful for a variety of reasons like we just discussed. But also, it means that your, your metabolism goes down. In fact, um, in, in one outstanding uh, 12-week study where they were losing weight sensibly, they lost about a pound and a half a week, but their resting metabolic rate went down 125 calories a day. Well, over the course of a month, that means if you ate like you were eating before, you'd be gaining a pound of fat every month, or, or actually, um, well, more than that, but pound and a half a month. So, so we, they, because 95% of all successful dieters gain the weight back within a relatively brief period of, of time, they said, let's see if we can add resistance training. They asked us to help them because of our resistance training experience. And they said, but we want them to have a higher protein diet because when you cut 
you cut your calories, you also typically cut protein as well as carbs and fats. So I so said, we need a higher protein. So they recommended, Maggie, um, and this is just Dr. Kenneth Povin from Harvard Medical School, she recommended 0.7 grams of protein, 0.7 grams for every pound of body weight, ideal body weight, the weight that you should weigh. Mm-hmm. So my wife weighs, she just weighed in this morning, she's just under 100 pounds. So let's say that she weighed 100 pounds. She, they would want her to get 70 grams of protein, a day, which is a little high. The RDA would say, oh, she only needs 40 grams of protein a day. But they say, no, that's way too low. That's and too little, research, yeah. Yeah, the research from many sources, Tufts University and, and, and many other uh, universities, would say that uh, people who are exercising, especially the resistance exercise, especially people over 50, if they want to build back their muscle, regain their muscle, <coughs> remodel their muscle, they need at least 50% more than the RDA. The RDA is about 0.4 grams per pound. So they, they would say they need at least 0.6 grams per pound. So anywhere over 0.6 to point, probably to 0.8 would be safe. We've never had any issues with that. And we've had excellent um, um, muscle and bone development, superior to when we don't do the protein, and also more fat loss, et cetera. So we, we go with the extra protein to make sure that we can actually rebuild muscle, especially in mm-hmm. people that are eating lower-calorie diets or on a diet program. So many benefits. My last segment is from Dr. Doug McGuff, author of Body by Science, considered by many to be one of the top experts in time-efficient exercise. Basically, it's, it's weight training. It's resistance exercise. Um, but it's done in a very specific fashion because the type of training recognizes what actually stimulates physical conditioning and muscular conditioning and muscle strength. And what that is, is being under a continuous and uninterrupted load um, or weight. And doing that in a fashion that results in a rapid and deep level of muscular fatigue. So what that means um, practically is doing a certain number of basic movements in a particular style. And that style is to lift and lower the weight very slowly and smoothly. Purpose for moving it slowly and smoothly is to avoid momentum. Now, most people, when they lift a weight, will put a lot of force into it, heave, and get it jerking and kind of going on its own. What happens is the weight starts to move under its own momentum, allowing the muscle to become unloaded from the weight. And that's instinctually how we will deal with any sort of weight that's put on our body. But we will go against those instincts and rather... Um, lift the weight very slowly and gradually. So rather than pushing the weight up in one or two seconds, we're going to take five to ten seconds to lift it and very smoothly come back down five to ten seconds to lower it and just do that repetitively. And what happens is because the muscle can't get out under the load of the weight because you're not moving the weight under its own momentum, the muscle starts to fatigue and that fatigue accumulates pretty quickly, usually in about a minute, minute and a half. And the depth of fatigue is pretty extreme. And that's actually taken as a stimulus by the body because that amount of fatigue in the muscle is actually perceived as a threat because muscle is how we move. And without movement, 
we can't get food, we can't keep from becoming food. So it's a very primordial stimulus when we become deeply fatigued that the muscle responds by reacting and making itself more capable. So you will have more muscle strength, more muscle mass, and that ends up propagating this ideal change in body composition that people are looking for. So that style of training is what we bring to a handful of movements that involve multiple muscle groups at once. So um, they're called compound movements, and they're movements that will involve several muscle groups, like a chest press will involve the muscles on the front of your torso, on the front of your shoulder, in the back of your arms. Um, a rowing motion will involve the muscles on the front of your arms and um, on the back of your torso. Um, a leg press will involve everything around your hips and legs. So big movements that cover a lot of muscle groups done under continuous load, slowly resulting in a deep level of fatigue, creates a lot of stimulus for your body to improve. Okay. And um, do you still recommend doing this once a week, or do you recommend a lot of people twice a week? What is your... What amount of time are you looking at? Yeah, so on a theoretical basis, if someone were to cover their entire body with that um, kind of exercise, properly supervised, done with proper supervision resulting in maximal intensity, a once-a-week frequency works very nicely. On a more practical level, um, especially if self-supervised, um, going to that level of intensity is super challenging so self-supervised um, probably results in a level of intensity where a twice-a-week regimen would probably be uh, roughly ideal. Um, a self-supervised person that gets more advanced and actually gets stronger by 50% or 100%, you know, you, by the time you've roughly doubled your strength in most movements, you're probably good to go about an every fifth day um, frequency, something like a Monday, Friday, Wednesday, Monday, Friday, Wednesday pattern. Um, but okay. it's kind of predicated on how hard you're training and then how strong you become because the stronger you are, um, the more physical stress you can impose upon yourself and it takes a little longer to recover. Here's what he has to say about cardio training. So this is not really what you recommend for heart health, doing jogging or, or long cardio workouts. Yeah, I, that's a difficult question to get at. Um, you know, I've had, you know, hour and a half long lectures that I've given on the entire concept. But I think the best way to put it is the notion that only lower intensity steady state activity like jogging or running on a treadmill or going on an ergometer or elliptical is the way to get at your cardiac and vascular system is just false. Basically, anything that you do that results in an increase of physical intensity above a resting baseline is going to invoke the metabolism and the cardiac and the vascular system to greater and greater degrees. Um, so the notion that the only way to get at the cardiac and vascular system is by doing something like jogging is just kind of incorrect. Um, you can get at the cardiac and vascular system through much higher levels of intensity and achieve the same effect. That's where 
um, the popular notion of high-intensity interval trainings come from um, because, you know, researchers like, you know, Martin Gibala up in Canada figured out that, yeah, you can do high-intensity interval training and get the same aerobic, i.e. cardiovascular benefit out of one minute of exercise that would normally take 45 minutes under a steady state condition. So it's just sort of a false premise wrapped into it all. And what happens is people um, accept that false premise and then try to get at this health benefit through a mechanism that results in accumulation of a large amount of high force um, impact. So in the end, you're not really saving your heart and vasculature, you're destroying your knees and hips. So it's just sort of a, um, a, a false understanding of how metabolism co connects to the cardiac and vascular system. Not saying it's evil, not saying someone should never do it. Um, a lot of people, as they get stronger from a strength training regimen, will now find themselves becoming much more active spontaneously and will take on those kind of activities but at least then mm -hmm. it's done in a proper context that occurred spontaneously. And now you have um, a stronger musculature to, to protect the joints and, you know, the connective tissues and stuff and that kind of activity. Whereas just doing that kind of activity will actually result in a diminution of, you know, muscular strength and mass in a way that you're even less protected from those forces. Okay, so it's good to do the strength training to make yourself really injury-proof, and then whatever activity you enjoy, um, you'll be less likely to hurt yourself. Correct. And, you know, I think it's better than try to come at those lower-level activities, you know, via this sort of scheduled regimented approach for it to occur um, just kind of spontaneously as an expression of your physical condition rather than, something done in a regimented way to try to invoke some degree of physical conditioning. In this final clip, I ask about the medical benefits of strength training. Here's what I've come to because I've been really interested in the anti-aging movement. I've been really interested in, you know, like the work of David Sinclair. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's all these compounds that people are talking about as, you know, means of uh, extending um, lifespan and a health span. Um, but as you actually look at the data that, um, you know, and this stuff is flying off the shelves and people are spending a lot of money, you know, on uh, NAD boosters and, you know, all the antioxidants, alpha-ketoglutarate, fill in the blank, is that all of that literally pales in comparison into um, compared to proper exercise and in particular strength training. So um, there were people, uh, Simon Maloff at the um, Buck Institute for Aging did a research project where they looked at um, the mitochondrial DNA of young people in their 20s and then older subjects in their 70s. And they did a statistical analysis of um, the genes within the mitochondria called a false discovery rate to find out what was expressed differently in old age versus young age. 
and they applied a 12-week strength training regimen to people that were aged in the 70s and 80s. And then they applied an analysis of their mitochondrial DNA before and after the training regimen. And what they found is that they discovered like 390-some-odd genes that reverted Mm -hmm. back to normal gene expression of a 20-something-year-old. So this was the first and only in, I mean, all of human history from, you know, the earliest literature we have, it was all about life extension. Gilgamesh was about life extension and bringing his friend back from the dead. You know, the fountain of youth, all this. For the first time in human history, we actually demonstrated a reversal of aging in humans at the genomic level. And basically, after that study came out, it was like crickets. You know, everyone knows about NAD. Everyone knows about resveratrol. Resveratrol flew off the shelves in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it showed some success in earthworms. David Sinclair has done some work in, you know, mice and rodents and stuff. But humans, actual reversal at the genomic level of aging, and it was just like nothing. There is nothing that compares to resistance exercise in terms of reversal of aging. And it's done through chemical messaging. So skeletal muscle is our most preserved biologic function. Movement is how we're alive. Without movement, we can't get food. We can't keep from becoming food. So muscle is the most um, active endocrine organ that we have in our body. And when it's used properly, it sends out tons of chemical messengers called myokines. And these are anti-inflammatory cytokines that basically 180 degrees oppose the inflammasome, the chemical messengers of aging. All the inflammatory cytokines that promote aging are opposed by myokines. And these are all released by skeletal muscle when they perform hard work. And it is literally the most powerful anti-aging modality that is available to us. And, you know, they... You know, they have studies where they look like at alpha ketoglutarate and say, oh, we increased the lifespan of mice, um, you know, and their mitochondrial DNA by 30%, so one-third longer lifespan in these mice. Well, the thing we understand is mitochondria are basically just ancient protobacteria that live in all of our cells. And mitochondria in a human is the same as it is in a mouse. But they always talk about the improvement in aging in terms of percentages rather than absolutes. Well, the mitochondria in a mouse that lives, you know, four months is the same mitochondria that's in us that lives 85 years. So if you take alpha ketoglutarate and you increase a mouse's lifespan by 30%, that doesn't mean that a human taking in my opinion, this is not known fact, but I think where they're missing the boat is they're taking these percentages and trying to apply them back to humans, like, oh, you do this regimen, you're going to live one-third longer. Like, nah, mitochondrial DNA is the same as us as it is in a mouse. So if the mouse lived, you know, three and a half weeks longer, well, that means we might live three and a half weeks longer. 
as okay. opposed to exercise, okay. which massively changes everything, and it's mediated through these chemical messengers that are released from skeletal muscles. So staying active and staying capable of being active is the real key to longevity. Well, that's really interesting. And, I mean, it's pretty clear how it would work for osteoporosis if you're improving your nutrition and, um, you know, resist, doing resistance training. But you're saying it, it's also going to help the immune system. And um, what about uh, oh, prevention absolutely. of dementia? I mean, it's, it's the it's the basis of the immune system, yeah. So um, one of the major uh -huh. myokines that is released from skeletal muscle is brain-derived neurotropic factor. And it is one of the major myokines and um, one of the major um, chemical messengers that is depleted in dementia. Um, and it's also linked to all-cause mortality. So once you start to have a depletion of brain-derived neurotrophic factor and you start to develop dementia, then all-cause mortality tracks right along with that. Well, it turns out that skeletal muscle is one of the major um, signalers to increase BDNF, and it's one of the things that really majorly combats dementia. I hope that you go back and listen to the full episodes and maybe go back and listen to some of the episodes that you missed. I really enjoyed all the connections I made over the past year. I hope that my interviewing skills have gotten a little better as I've gone and my editing skills have improved. But mainly I hope that you've learned something from my content. Imagine if everyone was proactive about their health and spent 30 minutes a week and got enough protein to maintain their muscle and get stronger. I have an interview scheduled with Dr. Chris Kenobi the first week of January, which will be about his really important research on what type of fats we should be eating, and he does have a new book, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening to the Off of the Couch podcast. Sending you best wishes for the new year. Take a small step. See you next week.